Mateus Carvalho is an inclusion and diversity consultant working with organisations across the UK and beyond to help create environments where everyone can belong and where everyone can succeed. A massive film nerd, he also curates and hosts the Vito Project LGBTQ Plus Film Club at the Cinema Museum in London. A celebration of cinema, community and LGBTQ Plus diversity, the Vito Project Film Club has shown some of the most important, interesting, gorgeous and sexy LGBTQ Plus cinema for nearly 10 years. Welcome, Mateus. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And that was a great intro to the Vito Project. Thank you. <laughs> I need to ask you about the name as well, so I'll come back to that. Um, but first, every episode starts with the same three questions. So the first one to you, how do you identify? So for the purposes of this conversation, from a sexual orientation and gender identity identify perspective, I identify as a cisgender male, and I am a gay man. And just to add it, to add to the conversation, I'm also Brazilian, in case people are wondering where the accent is from. Fabulous. Thank you very much. And the second question, when did you come out? Well, 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 is this where I have to tell people how old I am? <laughs> well, well, I came out multiple times, and now I actually have to think back on I guess it starts by when I came out to myself because, and I know that's that uh, we're going to talk about when did I know, but I think when I use the word gay to describe myself for the first time, I was probably in my teens. And the first person I came out to was probably, a fr well, my best friend, who turned out to be gay as well. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, by that time, I know for a long time. However, so here's a couple of interesting things. It took me a while to come out to friends and family. I remember the big thing for me was, um, so I moved from Brazil to the States for a short period of time to do some sort of like an internship. And then, lo and behold, I was surrounded by gay people. And that made it a whole lot easier just to, to to be myself because firstly, I was surrounded by other people, queer people, not just gay men, but queer people of uh, uh, all identities. And um, I was away from my home country. I was in a different context. I was living and existing in a different context. So it was a lot easier just to be myself. But then going back home, um, I... I was sort of living a not necessarily a double life because I wasn't really lying to anyone, but I was I was not out to my family and neither to many of my friends. And it took actually my leaving the country again, moving to Ireland, moving to then London, and start doing lots of stuff in the LGBTQ plus community when it comes to charity work and community work. And I had a moment of, oh wow, I'm doing all this great stuff and my family doesn't even know about it. How sad that I'm hiding um a really important part of my life and that's when i came out to say my dad but that was when i was already in my late 20s which thinking back was relatively late but again people come out when they feel like they they can't come out or when they're ready to come out thank you and there's lots there i think i'll probably come back to in a bit um so you mentioned when you you know, sort of came out to yourself, which leads us on to the final question for now. Um, when did you know? 
That's a good question because I I'm not sure I never not knew. <laughs> so which is an interesting thing to think about because um I was so even though maybe a most people look at me now and I'm quite, I, I think I'm quite conventional in how I express my gender identity. Thinking back on my youth, I was a, I was a very, was quite a, quite a queer child. And I use that, you know, in the, the, in the most beautiful way possible because I was very, um, let's see, I wasn't a, 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 a quote unquote boyish boy. I definitely didn't gravitate towards the same pastimes, sports, and even friendship groups as most boys did. Um, even when I was, I don't know, as, as young as I was, four, five, six, seven, eight, I remember spending a lot of time with girls, enjoying a lot of the stuff that they did. The, as you can imagine, Brazil is very, it's very gendered. And, um, the whole system of football for football for boys and you know girls can just play and be silly and do whatever they want that's that's how things work and um firstly i never really cared for football secondly i'm dyspraxic which does not help because i could never really play it <laughs> so um i think i was definitely not quite i was definitely not like most boys in school or even in my circle of friends in terms of behaviors and uh, and even what I what I liked. And um interestingly, I think so the thing about Brazilian culture, especially at the time, is that sex is quite rampant in terms of uh and I'm don't mean just the, the act of sex, it's like sexuality because the exploitation of bodies on TV um it's a little bit less okay no I'm lying it still is but I think in the 90s and 80s when the country had come out of um, years of uh, dictatorship uh, a bit like what happened in Spain after Franco there was this openness and rampant sexuality everywhere so you couldn't really escape naked bodies on tv sex scenes and soap operas you name it um and <laughs> My gaze was not was not necessarily towards where my parents expected it to be, <laughs> and that was from an, a very early age. So, um, so there's that. And then, in terms of um, what I gravitated towards, um, in terms of entertainment and TV and movies, I had a very special i was going to say special relationship more like a, a kinship with more um with female-led movies or strong female characters so i was obsessed with the little mermaid i was obsessed with most of those, those disney films that came out in the late 80s and early 90s and i loved the strong female presence so like even say for example Pocahontas, strong, athletic women, very camp, gorgeous, flowing hair. I, you know, I just love that, even though I didn't quite understand why. <laughs> but it did shape my my taste for movies and culture in the future. So all of very long-winged answers to say that queerness was always there, um, even though I didn't quite have a name for it, in my, obviously, in my youth. And 
do you think kind of because you are you know a massive film nerd that's the the phrase you used um do you think kind of it sounds like film kind of saved you a little bit like you could escape into that and you could escape escape into those role models when you weren't necessarily represented in this highly sexualized culture and football and that traditionally masculine stuff would that be fair oh yeah absolutely i think film and cinema has always been so it was then it still is a form of of escapism and uh just existing in a different world and um it was also cathartic i think especially when a lot of the 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 hero journey was around someone who even those disney films i just mentioned usually it's about a, a character that doesn't quite fit in it's not a character that doesn't does not necessarily comply with what society expects of them. Besides all the glorious camp elements of those films, but uh, there is a there is a theme there that really resonated, and and even now I think, yes, I I do think being being um, in front of a screen, letting a film wash over you, it's still a form of uh, um, going to a dream state. <laughs> So yes, film did save me many, many times, and it still does. And I've interviewed so many um, gay or queer men who, men particularly, who have talked about um, strong female leads and strong female role models in films. And like, so I spoke to Jamie Pierce, who has a podcast called Hello Gorgeous, the films of Barbara Streisand. And we talked for far too long about Barbara Streisand. Couldn't fit it all in the episode. Um, Would we not always <laughs> talk about Barbara Streisand? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, like four hours long. I mean, it'd be too much. But um, but we like, and we had a few ideas about why we both felt that connection to those leading ladies. What 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 was it for you? You talked about those strong female characters. What what is what was it for you that drew you to them? You know what? I never really thought about it. In, in I never really deconstructed it. But I'm thinking about my upbringing. I was always surrounded by strong women in my family, so my mom, cousins, aunts. So I think I had a very. I was very lucky to have a very feminine upbringing, with a very strong women as role models, and thankfully no overt behavior, toxic masculine behaviors or displays of toxic masculinity. I think with those characters, there's always an element of rebellion or rebelliousness, which I never saw myself as rebellious in any way. Um, but there was something quite freeing about, say, okay, I'll just use some of the films from my childhood, like The Little Mermaid who wants to exist in a different world and uh, who rebels against the, well, the, the patriarchy or the Lion King and the whole theme of leaving home and coming back coming back home and fighting against expectations of uh, what it means to, to be who you are, et cetera, et cetera, or then embracing what it, what it means to be who you are. So I think there was a rebellious element to those characters. Also, those characters existed in a society or in a world that had not been set up to help them succeed. And I think that's the same with a lot of those characters that I love now. So whether it is, well, and a lot of the, the, the films by and with Barbara Streisand. So if you think about Yento, you know, what 
what does she do when when uh, she realizes that what she really wants she will not get just by existing as what she was because again there was a whole system that was rigged not to to even allow allow her to reach for for what she wanted so um I think it's a narrative that would still really resonates with me even as you know as I, as I grow older and I and I still gravitate towards female-led movies. And it's funny, though, like you said that you weren't a rebellious child, but actually I firmly believe, and you can tell me that I'm wrong, but I firmly believe that actually just being out, being LGBTQ plus and out is a form of rebellion. And so you were you were rebellious, even if it might not have been in that traditional way that you would have seen it. You talked about the difference, you talked about Brazilian culture and it being quite sexualized. So what was that like? Because that I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, but I'm assuming that that sexualized culture was very heteronormative. Um, So there wasn't really, you know, it was only heterosexual desire. So what was it like being in that highly sexualized culture when you were kind of on the outside of it and it didn't really represent you? What was that like? See, maybe at the time I did not see that it didn't represent me because when I left, I was in my early adulthood. And I think the representation then wasn't expected. So um, I remember, for example, going to see queer films in cinemas and whispering to the usher or whispering at the box office, oh, can I please have a ticket for... Then a Brokeback Mountain or whatever it was, um, and you wouldn't, and and that's the part of the complex na- uh, narrative around sexuality in in Brazil was that yes, it was very heteronormative. You wouldn't, you, it would be okay, for example, for the nine p.m. soap opera to show highly erotic and eroticized uh, scenes with a lot of nudity. <laughs> So I saw things as a six-year-old that even, you know, now looking back, I think, oh, should I have been watching that as a nine-year-old? But it was, again, 9 p.m., the soap opera, families are just around the TV, and it was, and everything goes. Um, so I, it was, I don't think the element of representation really hit me until later. And um, now things have changed. But again, how funny it was that, yes, uh, it was all right to show near full frontal nudity on TV, but showing two guys kissing, hugging, and never mind sharing the same bed, that would have caused an uproar. And it did. <laughs> the few times in which it happened. Things have changed to an extent. I definitely identify with the, particularly football and like the not not getting it like I I do get oddly invested if like England are doing well in something and I don't know where that comes from but but other than that I don't really care that much about football was it just football or was it around sport and that the kind of toxic masculine environments that sport sport can be in sometimes it was a combination of both one was that I just wasn't good at any of them and reality is I'm still not that's why my my uh activity of choice is anything that I can do on my own <laughs> whether it is jogging or weightlifting it's me on my own and I'm not I don't have to be competitive <laughs> but yes I think the environment of uh, the environment that those sports unfortunately still allow I think that's what put me off 
and I've changed my mind as in I don't hate football I actually think that it is like with any sport you know it can open up so many doors for people especially I, well thinking back in, in Brazil and other developing countries it is a way to get kids off the streets it is a way to you know uh, help classes ascend the, the 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 social ladder in a very positive and healthy way but also yes it is not a very queer inclusive environment in many ways not in the more heteronormative traditional environments anyway i am so sad that that it was the case then and it still is because were things different how different would it be for so many queer kids to whom sports would have would be a massive help in their feeling of self and so making social connections and mental health? So I think I think things have are changing, but maybe maybe not quick enough. But then again, I'm not a teen anymore, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in those environments. Well, it's interesting, like because I. And my next question was going to be that you kind of answered it about whether your relationship has changed with sport and with football. And because for me, like it, sports was such a toxic environment at school that it just made me not want to do anything. And so I used to dance. I had dance classes. I mean, I, was, I wasn't very good. I don't know why I did it for 10 years. But there we are. Um, but it surprises my my boyfriend still now when I said I used to dance because he's seen me on a dance floor and there's no coordination. But it made, because of like sports at school, it was so toxic. I didn't really then want to do anything. And it's only as I've got older over the past few years that I've kind of reevaluated my um relationship with exercise and with sport more generally because any form of exercise was like people are going to ridicule me you know even if I'm just running on my own and there's no one around there was just such fear there and I was going to ask if your relationship or how it had developed around sport and and football but you you sort of answered that I guess I think my my bitterness (laughs) towards it has has uh has disappeared to an extent (laughs) But then again, it's not a bitterness towards the sport itself. It is about my experience. Now, what has not changed in thinking back on previous work experiences, people would come to me, especially the guys, and would go, oh, yes, you're Brazilian. Of course you want to join our football club, don't you? And having to dodge that question or go, yes, sorry, it's not for me. (laughs) That's also, that's still a bit of a, a tight spot or an uncomfortable situation. Yeah, because people see Brazilians as loving football and that's... <laughs> of course. I mean, it is sort of, it's related to your Brazilian heritage. But I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, kind of, you have Italian heritage as well, yes, right? Yes, I do. Yes, exactly. Did you notice any cultural differences between Brazil or Italy? Or actually, you mentioned all the other places yeah. that you've lived as well. So yes. you obviously talked about going to the, the States and you met other people like you and that mm-hmm. made things a bit easier, but... Were there any kind of really real noticeable differences between those different places that you lived in terms of LGBTQ plus acceptance? So there is. Brazil, as with Italy, it's very patriarchal and uh, the, the gender expectations are rife in terms of um, what acceptable for women and men and the double standards or... Or boys and girls, for instance. So, for example, you know, if your young lad sleeps around, you know, he's, you know, he's like, "Daddy's boy, yeah, you go." And obviously, the um, 
the, the standard women are not held by the same standards and i think it's a i see that a lot still when i go home what has changed is my it's the environment around me because i think that moving abroad regardless of where i was i could be i could choose my people i could i had the well i've had the privilege of being able to choose who i want to hang around with or what circles i want to be part of so a for a bit, and now less so, it felt like living a double life or, or, two, or two different narratives where the real me is wherever I was. But then there was the whole me, which subconsciously still abides to certain rules or expectations. And funnily enough, I think that has changed as I've grown older. And now I, you know, I talk about my partner all the time when I'm home and people ask me about him or... And people know what I do, and they're very proud of what I do, and so am I. But it's very interesting that a lot of the things about my own personal experience that I'm used to talking about openly, like we're doing now, in English, it doesn't come out as easily in my own native language because that's not, it's linked to part of my brain that has not been trained <laughs> to talk about gayness, queerness, and all the all the good things in life that I, that I enjoy. When you were like traveling around and then you'd have to go I mean what was it like having to go essentially back into the closet when you got back home you wasn't comfortable and it was yeah it felt like felt like I was being disingenuous with my with the people that love me the most and um I was either dodging the bullet when it came to questions or avoiding talking about avoiding disclosing too much about what I do yeah, and and again, it felt like there's the the, the Brazilian, well, the the, the back homey and the me that lives wherever, well, in the UK or wherever it is that I was living at the time. So it felt like I was lying. So it, it felt disingenuous, and it felt like a a big fat liar. But then again, it's uh, I wouldn't want anyone who is not out to feel like they are lying. It's just that we all have our own time. And interestingly, I think I remember when I came out to my dad. So my mom is no longer uh, with me. So my dad, oh yeah. So uh, what happened was I was traveling with him, and I remember that we were sitting. Uh, we were sitting um, at a cafe in Rome or Spain. I can't remember where it was, but then I read some news that queer people in Russia were being sent to prison camps or something close to a concentration camp, and I remember getting the shakes, and that had a real impact on me as in physically there and then and um and then i remember that's what triggered my having a conversation with my dad around oh look at this this is horrendous and and then that was like my coming out story but i think one of the reasons why i've always delayed it was because i wanted to avoid the big melodramatic telenovela moment of tears and <laughs> pearl clutching and <laughs> sliding on <laughs> Um, you know, sliding against the wall. And so I, that's what I always had in my mind as a big coming up moment. It wasn't quite like that, actually. It was a lot more nonchalant <laughs> in most cases. I find like most coming out stories are never what we imagine them to be. No. And, like that soap opera. Like my boyfriend loves Turkish soap operas <laughs> and they're very much like telenove- telenovela style, yes. very <laughs> dramatic. Um 
they're always like sort of on in the background in the house. So yeah, wow. I'm glad it wasn't like that for you. <laughs> well, maybe considering how much I love melodramas now, maybe you know, maybe I missed out. You know, maybe maybe it should have been. <laughs> I would have made it very glossy. <laughs> should have had more drama. <laughs> yes. So, I you mentioned that you know they they ask about what you do now and that you're proud of what you do now. So. How did you come to work in inclusion diversity? And we'll we will talk about the film club as well and all your other volunteer yeah. stuff that you do. But like inclusion diversity specifically, how did you get to this place? Well, um, previous employer at the time, I remember I was out to my. Interestingly, I was out to my coworkers and not so I was out to my boss and bosses, and I wasn't out to my family. You know, and that's something that really bothered me. But um, at work, we started an LGBT network. And then that's when I started getting more engaged in charity work, community work, um, socially, socially conscious LGBT work. And what triggered that was actually a really sad event, which was the shooting at Pulse. The, if, if I'm not, in case listeners don't remember what it was, it was an episode that happened in... I want to say 2017 now, 16. Okay, sorry. This is when we need to do some, we need to go on Google. <laughs> but um, anyway, there was a, there was a shooting. Someone went into a nightclub in Orlando in Florida and good for a dozen people, mostly LGBT because it was a queer club, died, including someone I had worked with and who was a friend, not the closest of friends, but a friend nonetheless. So someone I knew uh, in Orlando. And obviously that horrendous, harrowing experience, I think triggered something in me. And I remember that we, me and other co-workers, we went to Soho, to Compton Street, where we observed a, a, moment of, a minute of silence. And I think that was one of the times where I really felt a sense of community, which maybe I hadn't felt other times because it was it felt serious felt like our community is under attack and i think that then led to the lgbt work and the employee network and other stuff that i started doing as a result of it so and this is something i tell organizations that i work with don't under underestimate how important it is to create that safe space for employees to be out because they may actually be having a better time when they're coming to work if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, as in providing that safe space when they go home compared to when they go home and maybe they're having a lot of the time with their families or they're not out to their families. So I think that led to my, that started my, my journey in diversity and inclusion because one thing led to another. So I was doing a lot of LGBT work for the employee network uh, at Disney and eventually and. Um, I just felt the DNA bug just bit me. I saying, I, I, I love this. I want to do this as a career. And yes, and then I just tried to find ways of doing just that, which is what I'm doing now. I remember hearing like you say that before about um, being out at work, but not out at home. And it was something, and I've worked in inclusion diversity for many years now, probably not, you know, as many as you, because you're, you're much, matter. much older. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
like and but it had never that had never occurred to me it's it, well, I think it probably had but it, no one had ever actually said it if that makes sense of like well of course actually there are going to be plenty of people who are themselves at work or at school or you know in places outside of their home and it never really it never really occurred to me until you you kind of shared that and how important it is it, we think oh it's just work or it's just school or it's just yeah. a social space but they are potentially for some people the only spaces where they are safe being themselves yeah absolutely and thinking back on why why wasn't I out to a family that you know in guess in my mind in my heart or whatever I, I I knew I was going to be I was not going to be rejected and quite the contrary being being gay actually has made me a lot more popular probably than I was before <laughs> but um I think it's that like most of us, the fear of rejection from the ones you love the most, or or again for me the the fear of the awkwardness. But also the workplace can be a it can be a good practice ground <laughs> for you to practice. What does it feel like to to be who you actually are most of the time anyway? And what does it feel like to have a conversation about being gay or gayness? Oh, how how would how would it feel to have a conversation with my family? So it, it builds that, I don't know, it's a, again, it's, it, it allows you to practice, I guess, being who you probably should be or who you'd like to be. And also builds a certain level of resilience, I guess, because you start having a sense of, especially as you grow older, you know what, I, it's just too much effort being anyone else, not being me, or at least that's how I feel. But then again, I, I do live in a country where, or in a city where my life is not a constant risk. And I know that's not the case with many for many other people aside from your inclusion diversity work tell me about the veto project film club oh yes absolutely so absolutely and so as i said i'm a big film nerd and my niche if you will besides besides disney fairy tales obviously (laughs) is i love classic cinema so if you tell me that a film was made in 1980s i go you know what it's it's too new it's not that's not old enough (laughs) So for me, my my main areas of interest are films made in the silent era, all the way back to the 1890s, 1910s, 1920s, and then all the way up to the 1960s, 70s. Then I started losing a bit of interest, maybe because the films are not as glossy, they're a bit more manly. <laughs> so I'd rather spend time with Betty Davis and John Crawford than Marlon Brando and Al Pacino in The Godfather any day. That's what I'm trying to say, really. <laughs> so all of this to say, the video project is a way for me to share my passion for films with an audience, um, but through a queer gaze. So it's called the video project because Vito, so it's inspired by Vito Russo, who was a queer activist, and uh, he was also a film historian. So he wrote this book called The Cellular Closet, which looked at nearly 100 years of queer representation in film, but he did that when no nobody else was talking about queer representation in film, also because most people thought it just wasn't there. So what he did was he looked at, say, films made in the 1930s, and you know that, and he would go, you know the, the, the sidekick, you know, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire's best friend, who happens to be very camp. Oh, yes, that's a coded queer character, and that's where you see that same call the character again and again in film after film. So he managed to de- decode or codify queerness in movies where people didn't even think it was there. So what we do with the video project is, or at least in its current iteration, because I, I came on board a couple of years ago, so it wasn't started by me. 
but we we watch the film before the film. I give it. I give a bit of an introduction on the historical context, and then we have a conversation on the film or about the film. So whether it is themes, the characters, or for example, we did a season which was um, where we explored movies made in Hollywood under censorship in the 40s and 50s. And the only way to get any coded queer queerness in most of those films was to make your villain coded queer. So your villain was uh, coded as queer. And we'd have a conversation around what it means for the representation. Is bad representation good just because it's there? But even when the characters do not, necess- do not necessarily represent what we would consider positive queer representation now, they were still most of the times the most interesting characters in the films and the ones that are most memorable. So so we talk about the complexities of those narratives and uh, and also how they've influenced understanding of LGBTQ plus narratives and people and characters over the years. So it's not just uh, your favourite Disney princesses then? No, having <laughs> said that, we will have a Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid screening in January, so... <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so I want to go back. Like, well, it's for the it's the final question. I want to go right back to the beginning, um, when you called yourself quite a queer child. Um, what what would you, if you could go back in time, um, what would you say to that queer child now? Keep watching the films you're watching because <laughs> they're worth your time and they will help you in the future. But also. Please tell your mom to to get her a better wardrobe because you know straight boy, blue and gray. You know it's not really doing it for you. So you know you deserve better than that. A huge thank you to Mateus for joining me on When Did You Know. Hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at wdykpod and find me on Facebook at When Did You Know Podcast. Until next time.